How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Has your electric utility bill ever spurred you to change your habits around home? Many consumers know they could save money if they use energy more wisely, and they know there are environmental and social consequences of how they power their lives. So what's preventing people from acting upon the knowledge they have for personal and collective gain? Is it lack of actionable information, lack of motivation, or something else? For the next hour, we'll discuss shaping individual energy consumption from very different perspectives, psychology, technology, and spirituality. Along with our live audience in San Francisco, we welcome three experts. The Reverend Canon Sally Bingham, President of California Interfaith Power and Light. Chris King is Chief Regulatory Officer of eMeter, a technology company. And Greg Walton is Assistant Professor of Psychology at Stanford University. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you all for coming. Uh, Chris, let's begin with you. You've been in the utility industry a long time. What is the top motivator to get people to change their consumption patterns? I have been in it for a while, and it's been my life work. I've I've, uh, always uh, supported energy conservation and thought it was really important for society. Over the years, we've run a lot of programs and surveys, and number one is almost always saving money. People put that first. But not surprisingly, there are plenty of other motivations. One of the interesting ones in a program we just ran in Washington, D.C., was we want to help policymakers with energy policy. Uh, Certainly reducing emissions is another one. Uh, Avoiding the construction of additional power plants is one. And then just doing good for the environment, sort of as a general principle, comes up pretty often as well. Greg Ralton, is that same with your research, that what motivates people, what you get inside their minds a little bit in terms of what shapes their behavior? Yeah, I think that um, that saving money is is one that's a little bit tricky. Uh, for many people, that's, that's important. But some people uh, who are wealthier and who uh, use a lot of energy um, uh, are maybe less sensitive to price changes. And it can also, there's, a, I think, a downside to focusing too uh, narrowly on Money, in the sense that the the money that you see your home individually save might not seem sufficient to 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 uh, to really motivate you. Um, what we've focused on uh, in in our group is on creating the sense that this is a a community movement. That this is something that is uh, co- important collectively for for our community, for our society to do. Um, and we've done um, just small scale uh, studies, uh, but where we precisely manipulate uh, the sense that this is a, an activity that people are doing together, uh, saving energy, um, uh, we found that people uh, uh, are more motivated to, to do pro-environmental things. Well, Sally Bingham, churches are people, uh, churches are places where people come together, they share values. Is, is that, uh, what motivates them? Is it, is it money, saving money, saving souls? Well, saving I think I'm in creation? I, I have a bit of an advantage in that, um, as you well know, most religions can use guilt. And, <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it works. 
but mostly our congregations that are cutting their energy use are doing it for the right reasons. They're doing it for the right moral and uh, reasons that we are stewards of creation and it's our responsibility to cut our energy emissions. And yes, it saves money. Very often a congregation will begin this process for money-saving reasons, but also because they know they're doing the right thing. And that moral responsibility, which lives in religion, has been an amazing and wonderful motivator around values. Do we care about the future? And how is our behavior affecting the future? And if we can change our behavior, are we better stewards? And are we loving our neighbors? But will congregations do something that's really not economic? I mean, if if doing the right thing costs too much, will they still do the right thing? If they can find a way to finance it. And we have found four or five different models of ways that congregations can, at very little expense, install solar, for example. Or if they have an energy audit of their building and somebody lays out for them, all you need to do is put in six new compact fluorescent light bulbs. You'll save a little bit of money keep saving it, and then you can get a new refrigerator. Then you get the new refrigerator, and you're saving a little bit more money. And and I think when people have the right information, they do the right thing. So it is a matter of education, conversation, and community um, agreement that this is something we need to do. Chris King, did you want to jump in? Yeah, there are a couple of really interesting aspects about electricity that makes this at once more challenging, more interesting. On the one hand, uh, electricity is one of the best values for money that we have in our entire lives. I mean, turning off your power is one of the last things you would do in terms of uh, stopping spending your money. And, and the amount of money you spend on it really is a pretty small amount for most people. So you can't save a, a whole lot, um, although that's always a motivator. On the other hand, there's a good awareness that there's this connection with these externalities, the tragedy of the commons. People understand that electricity creates emissions, energy independence issues, and so on. So there's this strong desire for more information and ability to do something. In the surveys, you get from 60 to 80% of people saying, I want more information. And so what is coming out now as a result of things like the smart grid, smart meters, and so on, is people are starting to get some more information what can I do locally to help globally kind of thing? So let's talk about that information. You know, does it have to be in real time? I think uh, people talk about feedback loops. Uh, Greg Walton, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a context in which more information can definitely be helpful, but it's also, uh, as Chris says, a, a complicated and interesting space. Um, so if you uh, if you take the comparison of, of buying a, a hybrid car, which like a Prius, which shows you your gas mileage as you're driving, uh, the, the the behavior that you're doing, that is how fast you accelerate, uh, uh, how you drive, um, is uh, tied very directly to the feedback that you're getting about your 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 miles per gallon, your energy efficiency, and the the only thing that's using energy that is gas in this case, the only thing that's using gas is whatever you're doing in the car. That is how you're driving, whether you're using the AC, what the temperature is, and so forth. But in a home energy environment, it's much more complicated. There are many more sources of of, of uh, devices that are that are sucking energy. Uh, it's very hard to tell, uh, you know, what is what is actually contributing to your your energy use. 
Um, and so this makes it uh, complicated. It, it means that we don't simply want to give people more information. If we gave people real-time information about every device in their home and how much energy it was using, people would be you know, obviously completely overwhelmed. Be, that would not be an effective solution. So the, the question is, uh, and the difficult problem is, how do you take this capability we have to measure all of this information use on a, on a, on a real-time basis, and how do you package that and simplify that so that it's it's uh, accessible and actionable to the average consumer. And I think that's something that's that's very uh, challenging um, and much more complicated and interesting than in the case of just having a hybrid car where you get the, a much more simple relationship. So, Chris King, that, that's your business, is get, you know, enabling that kind of information into the homes. Um, who's doing it well? So um, one company, funnily enough, is in Kansas. Uh, Topeka, Kansas is doing a good job of this. They're doing a big project in Lawrence, which is where the University of Kansas is. One of the things they're doing is uh, on their website, they don't have a graph of hour-by-hour information uh, on your usage, at least not up front. So the customer comes in and they see this very user-friendly site. They see a couple of highlights. You're using 20% more this month than last month. Your energy use is the equivalent of driving two cars this month. And that's pretty much it. If they want more, they can drill down and get more. And customers really like that. On the information, uh, from the again, from survey data, you ask people what they want, basic, more detailed information. There is some interest, but what they really want to know is what you mentioned, Greg, which is appliances. How much is each of my appliances doing? I know if I turn my toaster on, my energy use is going to spike up, but that doesn't tell me anything useful because over a period of a month, I don't know if that's five cents or five dollars. So giving them that monthly breakdown, which can be done with a combination of a smart meter and some algorithms, you can get 80, 90 percent accuracy on that. Um, then customers get that information, which was the number one on their list of wants. Now, Microsoft and Google have both made uh, passes at providing this kind of information to homes, and they haven't been very successful. We've had heads of you know, those people here talking uh, together, uh, Google Power Meter, Microsoft Home, uh, the idea that, oh, just give people information on the web, it'll be easy, and they'll change behavior. It hasn't really taken off. Why is that, Greg? Yeah, I, I think um, I think it's really important that people are, are motivated to sort of take the sign, take the sign as something that's important to them, and we need to think about the things that motivate people uh, to really get engaged and and, and work on a problem. Um, uh, and that's not always the same thing as what people say is important or say that motivates them. Sometimes the things that affect us are the things that we're not necessarily aware of. Um, there's a, a social psychologist named Tim Wilson who about 10 years ago wrote a, a wonderful book called Strangers to Ourselves, which is about all the ways in which the, uh, our own psychology, the causes of our behaviors and feelings are, are, are ones that we're not aware of. Um, so we need to identify the things that, that really do, in fact, motivate people through, uh, ideally through um, experimental methodologies, that is to test out uh, different kinds of strategies and see how people respond to those strategies. Uh, again, one of the ones that that I'm, I'm hopeful about is uh, ways to create the sense that this is a, a community project, that saving energy is, is not something that you're doing on your own or that various people are doing individually, but it's something that communities are coming together to do to address community problems. Well, Sally Bingham, that seems to be right up your alley. Is that yeah. churches, our, our communities? Yeah. And, yeah. and I would back that up 100%. Yeah. We have a program called Cool Congregations, and when a congregation joins the cool congregation program they're working together as a community not only to lower the uh, emissions that are going out of their congregation but the families participate in the program and then we find that children 
get very motivated. And we talked earlier who will compete with each other. You know, the little boy that rides his bicycle to church, the other one that runs in and says, yes, but I took a cold shower. And um, they and they find these ways of um, motivating uh, their parents as well to to turn the lights off when they leave a room. Uh, when I was a child, my father was the one that always said, don't leave a room with the lights still going. And now, and then we went through a whole generation of people leaving lights on, leaving computers on, leaving televisions on. And now it's the children that are coming in and saying, hey, shut the water off. It's running in the kitchen or turn the lights off before you leave. And, and in our congregational program, the Sunday schools can teach energy efficiency. And um, and so the kids are great motivators for for change. And so you're talking about competition within families and within congregations. But uh, Greg Walton, congregations uh, competition writ large does that work in motivating yeah. large groups of people I'm, that aren't affiliated? Yeah, I'm, I think that if you feel like if if your utility company gives you your energy use feedback, for example, and they they tell you uh, that there's a competition with other people. Uh, in your neighborhood, say, or other people in your city. I think that for some people, that's that might be motivating, and for some people, uh, that's a turnoff. I mean, people want to feel that they're part of a community, and if you're competing with other people in your neighborhood, it can kind of break down that sense of community. If you're already part of a family and you've got a couple of, of siblings, for example, who are competing to save energy, and they're already sort of part of that family, and that's tightly woven, and that competition doesn't, doesn't feel like it's driving you apart, uh, it might be very effective. But in a neighborhood where people are trying to feel like they're part of that community, I, um, I think that it is a, a, a strategy that has some downsides. Chris King, yeah. competition, a motivator? I agree that in some cases it's good and, and others it has its downside. I know uh, certainly from some of the programs utilities that put out there, they've gotten great success from some customers when they say, compared to your neighbors, this is how much you're using. But we can't live, all live in Lake Wobegon. Um, we're not all above average, and a lot of people who are below average are really upset when they get these things. But this community <laughs> aspect is... Especially when they're told they're below <laughs> average, yeah. <laughs> well, and then you start getting into some of the methodology and, you know, how accurate is this comparison. Um, but this community thing, I, I use the example of recycling because there are a couple of pieces. Community is huge. The guilt uh, is sort of part of that community thing. And the other one is convenience. Um, so we have the blue bin. So what does that do? Well, if I don't have a blue bin, I feel guilty I didn't put it out. Um, my neighbors see that I didn't put it out. If I do put it out, I'm like my community. I feel part of the community. I'm for doing something recycling, good you're talking, yeah. for recycling. And then uh, it's convenient. It's really easy to do. Mm-hmm. So those things, it's not just one thing. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of these things. Yeah. Uh, question. Sure. Um, what about prizes? If it, if it isn't guilt and it's and it maybe is not um, economic savings, but what about offering awards? And I know PG&E did that here when they said if you could cut your energy use in January and February, they would reward you um, in March by cutting your bill back 10% or something. And I mean, I don't know whether that was hugely successful or not, but I know in our cool congregation again in that we offer... Um, awards for congregations that mm-hmm. cut their carbon emissions and can show us that they did it and how they did it, and and that works. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, th- I think that one. Of the, I mean, obviously, prizes can get attention, um, 
and draw attention to an issue. Uh, and they can also uh, uh, signify that this is something that the community values, is something that's important for the community, therefore it, there is a prize for this. Uh, and that can reinforce that sense of community. If it, if it, if it feels like a competition without that broader sense of mm-hmm. collective purpose, it could, it could have, um, you know, it, it could be, have unfor- other effects. Um, so a, a lot depends, I think, on the social meaning that becomes attached to something like that, how the prize is packaged and presented, uh, how, how it's represented to people. How you put the star on the refrigerator next to the person's name, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're talking about energy conservation with uh, Ke- Sally Bingham from California Interfaith Power and Light, Chris King, who's the chief regulatory officer at eMeter, and Greg Walton, a psychologist at Stanford University. Chris King, uh, we're talking about uh, motivations for different people work differently. You've done some, or there's some work on segmenting the sort of utility customers, and there's a couple of of uh, categories. I believe this was you. You know, the, there's deniers, the environmentalists, et cetera. Tell us about the segmentation and how different people uh, th- that lines up. So this is a completely new concept for utilities in the last couple of years because they've always had rate payers, and now they're starting to talk about customers and seeing people as being different, not in a class that pays a certain rate. So there have been a number of surveys over the last three or four years and programs testing these out, and people generally fall into one of four groups. Um, one group simply doesn't care. They ignore it. They, their energy bill's too low. They're not going to do anything to, about it. They're not going to change it. And maybe that's perhaps two in five people. Then there's uh, a group that's very environmentally conscious and motivated, and that might be one in five. And then a third group that's really focused on saving money. Um, could be the retired couple who's, you know, the engineer who goes around the house and is turning everything off, that kind of thing. Another one in five. So savings is important to everybody, but this group is really, I mean, that's everything for them. And then the fourth group is sort of your high-tech cool factor, uh, comfort. So um, I want to use the latest technology kind of thing. So there are those four segments, and um, more, the more successful programs tend to look at the different segments, package the messaging that will respond to each of the segments, um, and and then go after them that way. And, Greg Walton, you've done some work looking at how uh, utilities communicate differently with people that are doing at the top versus doing in the middle versus doing at the bottom. Tell us about that. Yeah, we've been uh, working um, uh, with our, our partners, um, uh, uh, Lisa and Steve Schmidt at uh, High Energy Audits, um, to develop uh, 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 messages that can go to consumers who are using more versus less energy. Uh, and that are intended to try to create this sense of community. So if you're using less energy than other people, um, so the messaging might say something like, you're an energy leader in your community. Um, and that's designed to create that sense that you're, that this is not something that you're doing that makes you different from other people. It, it's that you're ahead of the pack. Uh, there's some research uh, that shows that if you tell people who are using less energy than others that they're using less energy than others, that that might actually cause them to use more energy because they they say, well, I guess I'm doing well. I can slack off. I'll just conform to the energy, you know, high energy use norm. So uh, in this case, we want to uh, communicate to people that they're part of a, a community and that they're leading that community. If you're using uh, more energy than others, um, uh, you don't want to convey to people that they are... Um, that they're just bad. You don't want to just have a negative message. You want to, uh, again, try to create that sense of being part of a community. So we uh, create messages like, 
uh, other people in your community have started to save energy, you can join in too. So you're not differentiated from your community. Other people have started to do this, and you can participate in that common project. So we've been working to create these messages, and then we'll we'll, uh, be able to experimentally test whether they actually uh, affect people's energy use at each of the different energy levels. And these are low to zero cost interventions, right? It doesn't cost a utility much to change some language in a bill. That's right. So this is about how people represent their energy energy use, how they understand their energy use in relation to other people's energy use. And you can change that just through the framing in, in the context of an energy bill or uh, a monthly email, for example. Um, it's very it's very low cost. It's It's not about cost. But we live in a regulatory environment, Chris King, where most utilities are not really incented to do this, right? I mean, they make more money the more more juice they sell. That's not true here in California, but uh, most utilities are not really incented for their customers to use less because that's how they make their money. That's right. In in two-thirds of the states, they make more money by selling more energy. The other issue around the regulatory side is the inflexibility inflexibility or rigidity that's created when they have to get approval for things. So the kinds of things that Greg is talking about, comparisons on your bill, would be great things to do. A lot of utilities would love to do this, but it literally takes them about two years to make a change in their bill format because they have to go to their commission, they have to go through hearings, they have interveners, and so on. And it's completely against this need to do experimentation, try different messages, turn off the ones that don't work, turn on others that do work. Um, so to the extent that you can have information made available via authorized third parties, there's an opportunity. And this is one of the things that the California PUC is included in its decision that's going to be issued in a couple of weeks. So a consumer can say, let uh, Energy Hub, since Google's not going to be doing it anymore, let them have my data and tell me when should I buy a new refrigerator or you know, message me in ways that are effective to me. How about tips? Do tips of do's and don'ts, do those work well? Generally, no. Um, if they're specific to a context or a situation, they work real well. Uh, there's one, uh, a friend of mine's parents got a smart meter, and he, he looked at their usage and said, well, it's really high during the night. Turn everything off. They did. still really high. Oh, it's a bad refrigerator. They bought a new refrigerator and cut it by two-thirds. This could all be done automatically. Uh, with automated interfaces, you wouldn't ha- even have to have the person uh, looking at the details there. So that specific tip in that specific situation is extremely helpful, but just a list of 100 tips on a website is not very helpful. There's uh, there's research in, in the context of health messaging on the, you know, the CDC tips, uh, do's and don'ts to not get a cold or to get a cold. And it's terrible because people get which things you're supposed to do and which things you're supposed to not do confused. And then they end up doing wash your hands, sort of get a cold. <laughs> they, they get confused. They don't. They don't. They they, they don't have a. They, if you don't have a good theory uh, about what it is that's using energy, and you just get a bunch of behavioral tips, especially ones that are generalized that aren't personalized to your needs, um, it's really not effective, and it can even be counterproductive. So. You um, think that themes, utilities ought to educate people about yeah, themes. That yeah, they, so, they to the, so I think it, it would be very helpful if people's uh, sort of education level on something like energy use went up. That is, if people had a, 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 you know, a better theory about what are the kinds of things that use energy. For example, things that are on all the time or things that change uh, energy, uh, cha- things that change heat levels. Um, and if you have a, a, a theory, uh, if you understand it at a more thematic level, what what uses energy, um, that might be able to guide your behavior uh, in diverse situations more effectively. 
So either either personalized tips that are based on an analysis of your home's uh, energy use that could identify, for example, uh, that you have a, an inefficient refrigerator or that you have a pool pump that's going on all the time, and they could specify that for you very um, accurately, or uh, or and or a broader thematic understanding of what it is that that uses energy, um, I think could be more effective than just a list of tips. So we've talked a lot about information, but I want to put out there empowering consumers in, in the context of energy. Information is one of three key elements there, and all this stuff is, fits right in there. The second one is pricing. Right now, everybody pays a flat price, or it actually goes up as you use more energy. But there's, as a user, what do I do about that? Well, I turn things off. I was already doing that. But there's nothing else I can do. But the fact is that the price and cost of energy varies dramatically by time of day. So if I have a time of day pricing scheme, then I can shift when I do my laundry, when I do my dishes, maybe some other things. And I might save a little. It's not going to be a huge amount. I'll save a little. But more importantly, I can do things over time that can support some of my other goals. Um, Two of those. One is if I'm told what emissions different power plants are using. Um, because the power plants during peak hours are dirtier, so I may want to shift to reduce emissions. Um, and also things like wind that I may want to support blow at night. So if I have things that turn on automatically when the wind's blowing, and, and granted there's not a lot of this, but there's some of this. Um, so refrigerator defrost is another example that are easy to do. Then these, these pricing uh, incentives can show me that, and then I can... I can uh, support my social and community goals in a way that's uh, easy to do. We're talking about energy efficiency at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club with Chris King from eMeter, Greg Walton, a psychologist at Stanford, and Sally Bingham, president of California Interfaith Power and Light. Uh, Reverend Bingham, you have a story about a church in Illinois that got into efficiency for one reason, and something entirely different happened. What happened to that church? Well, the rector of that church was um, suffering from economic troubles. And, he was going uh, out of business. Yeah, he was going about the church. The church was losing its parishioners. And someone in the congregation who was involved with solar uh, said, why don't we put solar up on our roof? And they had to figure out how they were going to pay for it. And I don't have the details of their payment plan. This fellow has a video, and anybody who wants to look at it can. It's St. Luke's in Dixon, Illinois. He is very upfront about saying that he puts solar on the roof for the sole purpose of saving money in electrical bills once, once the solar was installed, and then became a green. He calls himself the, a greenie now, and his congregation has grown more people are coming into his church because they're curious about a congregation with solar on the roof. And his whole uh, behavior and his whole psychology, if you will, around environmental stewardship has changed. And he recognizes it now as a matter of faith. And his parishioners, his, as I say, his congregation is growing. His parishioners are now all doing these energy efficiency uh, uh, behaviors in their own homes, and he's turned into the greenest church in the diocese of Chicago, all all through uh, economic incentive. That's not usually how it happens, but it did happen that way with this fellow, and um, 
You know, every, people all, we're all wired differently. We all have different DNA. We have different things that turn us on. And you all were saying that maybe tips are not perfect or, or the, the answer. Our tips work, but we do things one tip in the liturgy that your congregational people are holding in their hand on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. And it says if you leave your refrigerator door open for, I don't know, 10 minutes while you're walking around the kitchen, it's the equivalent of deforesting 85 acres of tropical rainforest. (laughs) (laughs) And people can relate. They, oh, my goodness, you know, and quickly shut the door. And we found that some of those tips... um, do work, but they need to be kind of one at a time if they're going to work. Greg Walton. Uh, what, what I like about the story of the church in Illinois, uh, one of the things I like about it is it begins with this uh, this financial um, incentive to save energy, uh, to save uh, dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, uh, it also quickly becomes a church building and community building uh, exercise and experience where everybody's coming together to save energy uh, and to save money uh, and to be part of a, a community that's doing that. And I think that's a great story. Mm-hmm. You used to, uh, Greg Walton, you used the word movement sometime to become mm-hmm. part of a movement. What, what is a movement? I don't really know what that is. Yeah, I, I think sometimes, you know, it feels like a lot of people uh, do something. In, 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 it's as though they're each doing that thing individually. Uh, so um, people might be saving energy in your town and they might each be individually uh you know, going to the hardware store and replacing their light bulbs or buying more efficient um, windows or something. But uh, to make it feel like a movement, I think it has to feel like this is something that, that we are doing together, that's something that's collective, uh, something that uh, I know that you're doing this, I can imagine that you're, you're doing this, I can imagine my, my neighbor's doing this, and uh, I'm, I'm part of this, this movement that's doing that. I mean, we see movements, with, so it's a word we use in, in political context often. We, we think about the... Um, the uh, uprisings in the Middle East uh, and how uh, people uh, came together uh, seemingly uh, very quickly and spontaneously to demand change in how they were governed in, in North Africa and the Middle East. And it, it becomes a collective thing. It becomes a collective project to, to change the world that you're in, to, to, to make the world a better place. And if we can leverage that in a context of a collective problem uh, like uh, environmental environmental problems. Um, I think that we would we would um, we would go a long ways. Collective meaning what well, the individual action, the action of any individual yeah, so seems to be meaningless because I'm just such a small tiny piece yeah, of something so big. Yeah, so you can look at your energy use and you can say, you know, it doesn't save me that much money to replace my light bulbs. Maybe it, you know, the environmental effects just don't seem that big. You know, if I I'm the one who does it. But at the at the at the scale, you know, with everybody, this is a big problem. It's a it's a big financial problem, and it's a big uh, it's a big environmental problem. And so I th- I think it really helps to uh, to move people from thinking um, individualistically to thinking about this as part of a, a collective a collective problem. Sally Bingham, do you want to chime in on that? Well, I think that's very important, and and I, I it, it calls to mind uh, Jane Goodall, who I'm sure many of you know who she is preached a sermon at our cathedral here in, um, up on the top of Knob Hill. And she said, you know, when you're um, walking to the recycle bin and you're carrying your plastic and your bottles and, and then the, the garbage truck passes you and it's all full of trash going, and you feel that you're not really making a difference because you're one person with a huge problem. And then she related it to water and she said, 
when you're, if you can remember to turn the water off when you're brushing your teeth, and you still think, but that's not much, that's just me and a little bit of water, she said, but what if everybody did it? We would save rivers. And that stayed with me. I mean, she probably said that eight or ten years ago, but I often use that metaphor. If you're, if you think of yourself as being part of a community or a movement, it makes a big difference on how you behave. And to, Greg, to put a point on that, uh, what about power plants and saving? Uh, these programs over the years show that people can readily shift their peak down by about 20% without making major lifestyle changes or anything. What does that mean? That would be 140 coal-fired power plants for the country. Huge save, yeah, the megawatts. We're discussing energy efficiency at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and our guests are Chris King, regulatory officer with eMeter, Sally Bingham from California Interfaith Power and Light, and Greg Walton, almost said Greg Dalton, a professor of psychology <laughs> at Stanford University. Not my job. Uh, so, uh, let's talk about social media. That's, we talked about competition earlier and, and, and becoming parts of uh, connected. Uh, Greg Walton, uh, how is social media connecting with energy efficiency? Yeah, I, 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 so I'm, I'm not an expert in how it actually is right now doing that, but I think the potential is, is, uh, is very exciting um, to um, to leverage things like Facebook and Twitter to communicate when you're doing something uh, like changing your light bulbs, it, it, it instantiates that sense of community and it conveys to other people that this is something that people in the community are doing. So, if if, if there is uh, if we can connect um, people's behaviors uh, to uh, other people, that is convey them to other people through social media, I think that's. Uh, a great use of social media. So Farmville games, rather than killing people that kill Watts, <laughs> I don't know, right? You know, earning credits, that sort of thing. You play Farmville, Sally? No. Okay. <laughs> I don't either. I have a Twitter account. Hey, there we go. So, <laughs> so just a couple of uh, anecdotes on that. So this uh, Westar in Kansas is using Twitter, and they're they're having people tweet what measures they're taking in this program. Another example. Uh, Japan is suffering major power shortages as a result of the nuclear power plant problems that they've had. And there are a number of folks, including myself, who tweet every day what the power situation is and how much they have to save that day to avoid rolling blackouts. So there are a couple of little examples here and there where it's starting to happen. Turn your power down now. People respond to those things, certainly for food. Go to this taco truck here on this block. I mean, like, right, if they could get that for... For, uh, for energy savings, that'd be quite a, quite a powerful tool. Uh, we're going to put a microphone up right here and uh, invite you to come up and uh, present your, your questions and comments uh, for our guests today. And uh, my colleague Jane Ann and Bryn will, uh, will help you form the line. Um, Greg Walton, how does this compare with other uh, movements or social norms, uh, seat belts, smoking, that sort of thing? What can we learn from those uh, historical uh, yeah, episodes? I, I think that, you know, if we think about something like seat belts, um, uh, you know, I think for a long time people felt that seat belts were, were uncomfortable and they were just sort of bothersome. And then there came a point where it felt like this is this is something this is part of who we are, part of what we do, and it, it felt wrong to not be wearing. It felt just unsafe to not be wearing a seatbelt. Uh, similarly, with recycling, uh, you know, there was a time not long ago when you just tossed the thing, you know, out of the car on the freeway. Um, 
I never and did that. <laughs> I wasn't accusing you. <laughs> it was a generalized. Okay. Uh, I should say we. <laughs> we did. Um, and now that feels wrong. Um, uh, and now we, we will walk around, uh, you know, for seems like miles sometimes looking for uh, an appropriate recycling bin for the thing that we're carrying. So there's a, there's a, a psychological transformation that happens there. Uh, that is, the, it's the same behavior, the same, ex, the same sort of experience, but it comes to feel very different uh, by virtue of its social meaning. And to the extent that we can create in energy context the, the feeling that it's simply wrong to, to, to be wasteful of energy, to, to be an energy hog, um, is, uh, is, is one that could, could then be internalized so that you wouldn't have to think about the river when you turn off the, the water when you're brushing your teeth or you wouldn't have to think about the coal power plants when you're uh, leaving the refrigerator door open. You just do those things uh, on an automatic basis. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a big difference. I mean, putting a seatbelt on is you're ultimately improving your individual uh, prospects for, for health mm-hmm. versus taking action on energy. Maybe some polar bear somewhere or a tree somewhere is better thing, but you, you don't, you don't uh, receive a direct personal <coughs> benefit other than, I guess, that warm, fuzzy feeling. But you do if you have children and grandchildren coming along and you want them to have a nice life. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Let's go to audience questions, please. Yes, sir. Yeah, hi. I want to follow up on something Sally mentioned briefly about refrigerators and rainforests, and that's using analogies to let people understand the impacts they have. For example, I read that when you use a hairdryer for one minute, the power plant releases CO2 to power that a hairdryer, and that creates future warming. And if you could take all that future warming and put it into one minute, that would be the equivalent of two 747s at full takeoff power, the heat generated by that. And now whenever I use a hairdryer and I'm thinking of these two 747s behind me, you know, heating up the atmosphere, it really has an impact. Yeah, thank you. I didn't really talk much about that aspect of letting people understand what their personal impact actually is versus little cost savings here and there. Yeah, I think that we definitely need to, to, to use metaphors to, uh, to help think through these problems. Um, I think that it's, it's very hard to stay at an abstract level and keep people engaged, and uh, even at the level of um, dollars and cents and kilowatts and you know, whatnot. It's just, it's just not going to happen. I think we need to have evocative, powerful metaphors that really create the feeling of the thing. And that is a, I'm, I'm, I'm blown back by the, by your 747 <laughs> metaphor. So. Uh, I talked with an advertising uh, executive recently who talked about, I guess, when you have a latte, there's like 50 gallons of embedded water in that cup that we, you get mm-hmm. at the, at the coffee stop. And this is an ad person said, envisioning an ad where someone comes into a store, gets that, uh, latte and then 50 gallons of water <laughs> crash down on the person's head to sort of drive home the point of the, yeah. that water behind what that, that little cup, those sorts of images. Um, let's have the next audience question, please. I, uh, thank you. This is a question for Professor Dalton. Um, what is the psychological experience that we have in the normalization of behavior? So you mentioned seatbelts, lights, recycling. W- what is the actual process that, that occurs in, in our head that transforms us and makes a behavior normal that used to be not normal? Um, so that's a great question. Um, uh, part of what happens is that you think that uh, this is a behavior that other people do, so therefore it's likely to be an effect. So if you, if you find out that other people uh, 
uh, take showers that are three minutes long, say, you're, you know your average shower is about 20 minutes. So, so you, if you hear that, you, 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 it can do a number of different things psychologically. So one thing it can do is it can convey that a three-minute shower is effective. That is, you can wash yourself adequately in three minutes. Uh, another thing that it does is it, is it creates, uh, and, that, and that's the sort of descriptive quality of that norm. Uh, it can also have a prescriptive quality. That is, it can convey that that's what people approve of. People approve of a three-minute shower. They don't necessarily approve of your 20-minute shower. So it can feel like you're violating the social rules uh, to take a longer shower. And those are things that psychologists have, those two aspects are ones that psychologists have really emphasized. But I think that a third one um, is that uh, when you find out that other people take three-minute showers, if it's, if it's in, the, in, the, in an appropriate social context, it can create the sense that that's something that people are actively doing, trying to do, uh, for uh, uh, an important end. So, for example, uh, to save uh, uh, hot water or water uh, generally. Um, so it can do all of those things. Uh, so just finding out that a behavior is, 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 just is normative, that is, people do this behavior, it can do all of those different things. Uh, that is, it can create the sense that it's effective, that other people will approve of that, that, that behavior, and that maybe there's a social movement around that. And all of those can have effects on behavior. Thanks. Next question, please. Yes, sir. Thank you. I was uh, struck by the comment uh, that it takes a utility two years to figure, or, you know, to get approval to make some changes. I'm just curious: um, is there any movement uh, to improve that time lag? Number one, and well, uh, not a two-part question. And uh, <laughs> is <laughs> are there some examples where that's uh, working effectively, where in fact uh, those changes are happening more quickly and they're experimenting with things? The answer answer to your first question is no, it's not really changing in terms of the process. If anything, it's probably getting a little more complex and slower over time as more people get involved. Um, On your second question, where are things improving and getting better, they're um, primarily on the Internet. Um, So there are there's one utility in Texas, uh, which is a competitive market, so it's uh, driving change more quickly, where uh, you have several different options on what information you can get from the utility with your bill or via email automatically to you. You can get uh, a view of your details of your usage last week. You can get um, text messages when you hit a budget threshold. You can get things like that. So um, technology really is changing that pretty quickly, and we're starting to see a lot more of that. In fact, here at at PG&E, if you have a smart meter, they'll send you a text message when your usage goes from one price into a higher price tier if you sign up for that service. We're discussing energy efficiency at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. That was Chris King with eMeter. We also have Greg Walton, psychology professor at Stanford, and Sally Bingham with the California Interfaith Power and Light. I'm Greg Dalton. Next question, please. Thank you. You were talking about the instant feedback loops that you see with the smart meters, and I was curious to find out how quickly you think these sort of the equivalent of, let's say, a hybrid car's dashboard people might see in their home where they um, could actually see how in, in an affordable way. How, how soon do you think that technology will be available to the mass masses? Chris King. It, it varies by state. In Texas, you can get it today. In California, we're probably about 18 months away. Other states, um, anywhere from, 
you know, six months to ten years away, depending on where they are as far as installing smart meters. There's an interface in the smart meter that needs to be turned on. So all the smart meters installed in California today have this. It's a radio that sends the information to this device in your home. Um, and that needs to be turned on. So in California, the systems are being built and regulations being developed to do that. And uh, the commission will actually be ordering pilots to be done um, around, starting around the end of the year and then wide scale again about 18 months from now. But will it be at the appliance level or something's going to aggregate all the information in the home? Well, this just comes from the meter, so okay. it, it can't tell you each appliance, but this gets back to the uh, modeling I was talking about earlier. So what we think is going to be the, mo- the most common model is a cloud service where you have a router in your home already for your home Wi-Fi. It'll have a receiver. It'll take the data from the meter in real time and actually put it back into the Internet. The analysis will happen, and they'll come back with either smart tips for you or this is how much your refrigerator is using based on our formulas. Okay. Next question, please. Great. Thanks. My question is about incentives and how incentives work at changing behavior. So whether it be at the point of purchase of of buying a more efficient appliance and getting a rebate or in, in providing a rebate for the removal, let's say, of a second refrigerator in the house. How, how is that whole area evolving and, and, and the effectiveness? Thanks. Chris King? Those, those incentives work. Uh, the, many utilities have done these, uh, turn in your old refrigerator and get 50 bucks, uh, PG&E among them. Those programs always sell out. Um, so it doesn't take large incentives. They also had one for second air conditioners for $25, compact fluorescent bulbs, uh, which you can get almost for free now, to a certain point. And one of the issues, frankly, is that some of those programs have kind of maxed out. All the second refrigerators are pretty much gone. All the compact fluorescents are pretty much out there. Um, but I think the short answer is they do work um, usually quite well. Yes, sir. Next Hi. question, please. Um, just to disclosure, I'm from the California Public Utilities Commission, but these opinions are my, myself. Um, I'm very much involved in all this, and, and you can, uh, we've calculated 0.524 pounds in the PG&E uh, service tariff, 0.524 pounds of CO2 uh, per kilowatt hour. So if you could provide, uh, is emitted whenever you utilize the, the grid. So if you could have a real-time interface like on an iPad, I think that's the direction it goes, and you can appeal to gamification or to environmental instincts and so on, as we discussed. There's different things for different folks. Uh, but how do you treat or how do you deal with psychologically and otherwise that all the costs seemingly are up front when we're in the middle of a, a, a recession currently, it seems, uh, but the benefits come years later? How do you appeal to them to incent them? Uh, besides, as mentioned, perhaps if you have grandchildren or children that you're concerned about, there's a big cutoff there between benefits and costs. Um, so, uh, so this is this is uh, the, the problem of, um, of discounting in part, where people the, the problem that you're describing is compounded by the the problem of discounting, where people prefer a dollar today to say two bucks to in two weeks. Um, and uh, there are all I, this is not my area of expertise. All I'd say is that I'm part of a large team at Stanford of um, of uh, you know, large inter- interdisciplinary team with a large grant from the Department of Education. I mean, Department of Energy. <clears throat> focused on a variety of different uh, ways to uh, uh, address energy problems and energy use problems. And one of my colleagues, Sam McClure, is leading a project that's designed specifically to look at how you can get people to um, 
invest in, in energy-saving products that, that have an upfront cost but will reap dividends over time. So there's ongoing research on that um, in, in my department. And I, I really think that this is a, a important role for religious leaders to talk to the people in the pews about our values. And instant gratification is nice, but long-term gratification is better. And there's a value in this country that we have established over the last 200 years that if you can afford it, it's yours. So if you can afford to pay all the, the higher energy bill, people just do it. If you can afford to, to water 10 acres of beautiful cut grass, then you're, you should do it. But that one of the values that needs to change in this country is that just because you can afford it, it is not necessarily yours. If you have any sense of moral responsibility and sense of community, you know, that you're talking about. And I think that religious leaders across the country have a very important role on helping a value change um, within their congregations that go to their families, that go to their friends. And... Um, and one of the most interesting things of your work is that you're doing that with different religious traditions, different cultures, right? So we could speak a little bit to that because mm-hmm. you, you, with Muslims, Jews, etc., mm-hmm. you're, you're finding that coming together. That's right. Well, every mainstream religion that we work with, and we work with most of them, have mandates to be stewards of creation, to love your neighbor, and to help serve the poor. And if those things can be integrated into sermons um, that connect to behavior energy savings, um, where does your energy come from, what are the consequences of, of extracting it from the earth, and, uh, and people start thinking differently. And we have found over the last 10 years that this movement is growing within the religious community. We are becoming the stewards of creation that we were intended to be all through information and information grab. And how many congregations are part of Interfaith Power Online? 14,000. Around the country? Around the country. Yeah, there are 530 here in California. And then I want to add, too, that we work with other organizations um, in energy savings. There's one, Engage 360, which is right here in the Bay Area, helping families and individual people. And we can use their resources and work with them on getting information out. Um, as we do with some of the environmental organizations to get um, scientific information. I mean, I'm, I'm a priest. I'm not a scientist. And I can't come up with the statistics and numbers that you all can when you're really experts in your field. But, we, it, but ours is values, value-related messages that maybe don't have specific numbers in them, but it's a concept. Have you measured the carbon? I'll get to Greg in a second. Have you measured the carbon impact of uh, of the, all those 4,500 congregations? What they've done? 14,000. 14,000. <laughs> <laughs> it's 14,000 across the country, and no, we have not done it except here in California because each of the state programs are independent of one another. And in here in California, we do an annual report each year, naming, numbering the amount of CO2 emission reductions. And as soon as we're finished, we'll ask Susan Stevenson from my staff, who's right back there, and we'll tell you exactly how many carbon emissions were uh, reduced through the work here in California. Greg Walton. Sally, I wanted to uh, ask you a question. I I think it's very powerful what what you're describing about uh, about, um, 
uh, talking about values and, and bringing that to the fore for people. Um, I'm wondering, though, um, where is it, in, in your work, where do you think that the barriers are to um, getting from, from that, from that sort of basic uh, principle of, of care for others and care for the earth to uh, behavior, to actually getting people to sort of put their, uh, you know, to, to walk the walk? Um, is it is there is there a is there a, a, a gap or a barrier in between the the desire and the value and the feeling of the the wanting to sort of endorsement of that principle and then actually getting people to to do it and, and how do you how do you handle that? Yeah, to actually change to actually the behavior. It, yeah. Well, you've addressed this earlier. I mean, lots of things motivate lots of different people. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no cookie cutter model for mm-hmm. what moves everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but we find in a community, once a congregation has started a process like this, people want to be part of it. Mm-hmm. They don't want to sit on the outside and be the one person that's coming in the parking lot with an SUV when everybody else is driving Priuses. And um, But there are all sorts of motivations. I mean, guilt works. <laughs> I'm Catholic. <laughs> you know, there's Catholic, Catholic guilt and Jewish guilt and Protestant guilt. Um but we're finding that mostly people want to do the right thing. And if they have the right information, and there are lots of uh, accounts of misinformation that is sent out, and if people don't want to change, they'll grab hold of the misinformation and hang on to that. Yeah. And that is a problem. I mean, it's, it's true of, you know, the issue with smart meters and climate change, if people don't want to move, they'll take hold of, well, smart meters uh, are exposing me to radiation, and they'll just hang on to that because they don't want to have a smart meter. Uh, Climate science is a hoax because they don't want to change their behavior. And another conversation we might all have is what, what gets people stuck in not wanting to change? We have a funny Episcopal Church joke where uh, the rector's looking at someone and saying, how many Episcopalians does it take to change that light bulb? And this woman stands there and she says, change? My grandmother donated that light bulb. (laughs) Powerful. So, Greg Walton? (laughs) Come up with something to follow that. Yeah, right. I can. Um, If you say guilt works, let's talk a little bit about fear. We've had some conversations here about fear and hope. And there's quite a debate about whether hope is a better motivator, that we can do something better, uh, or fear is a better motivator. And because a lot of the climate conversation is around fear. Do this or else these bad things will happen, or bad things are happening, we need to change. So, Greg Walton, fear or hope? Uh, They both can be very powerful. And the psychologists have have investigated both uh, mindsets around um, sort of promoting positive ends, uh, seeking to achieve things, to make things better. There's a social psychologist, Tori Higgins, who's uh, very famous for this work, is at Columbia. Uh, and uh, that's one kind of motivational system that can be very powerful. And a second kind of motivational system is a, is a one of uh, uh, preventing negative things from happening, uh, one characterized by anxiety that something bad will happen and the desire to avoid that, that negative thing. Uh, what that research generally suggests is that um, you need to have a fit, uh, a fit between the, the 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 motivational system that you're in, you're in the middle of. That is, are you trying to promote positive ends or prevent negative negative ends? 
and the behaviors that you're engaging in. So it, it, it again, it, it is a complicated answer, but it, it's one that is going to depend on the, the circumstance that you're in. Uh, but it is important to identify, is this a situation where you can promote something good or prevent something bad, and then think about it in, that, in, in, that, in the context of that. Sally Bingham, when you're preaching, do you use hope and fear or, or both? I don't use fear so much, but I certainly don't run away from some of the facts that have to do with climate change and what human behavior is doing to the planet. I'm, I'm you know, willing to put out some of those numbers. Um, hope is something, um, hope is a verb with your sleeves rolled up. If you have hope, you've got to work at it. It isn't something that's just going to happen because we're hopeful. That's optimism. But hope is uh, I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and go to work. Um, and, yes, I talk tremendously about hope. Hope probably more than fear. But I don't run away from those from the numbers. And so uh, just in the policy context, this applies to legislators and regulators. It's all about hope. Because fear will stop anything in its tracks. So you're not going to make any progress unless you can show the hope, the mm-hmm. positive side. Interesting. Uh, we need to end it there. Our thanks to our, our group here today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, the Reverend Canon Sally Bingham, President of the California Interfaith Power and Light. Chris King is the Chief Regulatory Officer at eMeter. And Greg Walton is Assistant Professor of Psychology at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for all coming, and thank you all for coming today. Thank you.